Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I have a very special guest today. Uh, it's going to be an interesting interview because uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a controversial article that she wrote for Religion Dispatches. And we're also going to talk about Hannah's story. Hannah Syriac, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. This is going to be great. So I just want to give you a little intro about Hannah. Hannah is an MA student at Brigham Young University and she in the Comparative Studies program. She studies the intersection of the Greco-Roman world with early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism. She also researches 19th century Mormon history and Mormon fundamentalism. So that's an awesome bio there. And that's we're going to cover quite a bit of what we just talked about there. <clears throat> um, but Hannah, I before we get into your story, which is actually the main reason, folks, just so you know, um, the primary thing was to have Hannah on. Uh, I was in touch with her before she wrote the article for Religion Dispatches because she has a fascinating story to tell. But then, of course, the article came and that kind of caused some waves. So I thought this would be a great opportunity for to maybe discuss, and we can both discuss it because I did some research about 20 years ago as well that discovered some similar things. So we'll talk about that. So Hannah, you wrote an article on Religion Dispatches talking about Heartlanders and uh, some issues that they might be having. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what made you take that journey. Yeah, so it, it, it was a really interesting journey for me. Um, when I moved out to Utah, I sort of had the default assumption that the Book of Mormon occurred in Mesoamerica. And then I was you know, exposed to different worldviews on Book of Mormon geography. That was the one that I knew the best though, because I had encountered a lot of fair Mormon material online and interpreter material more than anything. So I came across this position known as heartlanderism right so that's the belief that the book of mormon took place in in heartland america and i decided that i wanted to look into it because i had a few friends that were you know involved in it and then i i sort of uh, uncovered some things that i found were unsavory even though for probably a couple months i i, I considered myself very open to the possibility that it might be the correct model so you did all this research and you, and, and so just, you know, let's just kind of tie this into your journey a little bit too. So you became a convert, you were from Boston, Catholic, marginally so. And, and then about five years ago, something happened. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so my story is kind of complicated. Um, so uh, my parents got divorced when I was super young, um, but I was baptized Catholic as a baby. And then when I turned eight, my mom baptized me into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, I sort of had um, what I like to call a religiously curious upbringing. Um, I loved going to different churches. I went to different churches whenever I could. Um, and my grandmother was really devoutly Catholic. And I looked up to her a lot. She has Alzheimer's and she would pray the rosary every single night. She would never forget that, even if she would forget so many other things. So her faith was really the, the, the most concrete example of faith that I saw in my own life. So I decided, hey, I, I think I'm going to be Catholic. Um, and I went to Catholic college for a year. I wanted to become a nun, which I, looking back is just so foreign to me, but I wanted to become a nun. I wanted to be a Catholic theologian. Um, I had studied classics for years at that point. I was in the junior classical league, which is Latin club. I was such a nerd in high school. I still am. But um, so I had done all that. And then I had gotten to Holy Cross, College of the Holy Cross. And um, I, I was pretty conservative at this point in my life too. Um, and I had started basically asking questions about my own religion on a deeper level, my own practice. I, 
I attended mass and things like that. And then I had a class uh, from a Jewish professor actually. And he asked me to write basically like my own version of Tolstoy's confessions. We had read Tolstoy's confessions in class. And I, I, was, I was definitely weird in that class because it touched on a lot of Catholic doctrine, obviously. And I uh, felt like a strong imposition to defend Catholic dogma. Um, so anyways, so he asked me to write this, uh, this essay. And for me, that turned into basically a book project. I wrote a very, very long essay. Um, I turned it in and he was shocked. I remember giving it to him. It was like super big. Um, but in that essay, I asked, you know, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That to me was something that was self-evident. That's something that I don't know if I could ever not believe. But I started asking myself, uh, sort of, I like to say like Joseph Smith, which of all the churches was right? Um, and then I landed on the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, primarily because of the book of Abraham, which is very strange. <laughs> um, wow. I, I feel like, I feel like the, I'm like the only person that says that, but it's true. Like, I just, I just loved the book of Abraham and I thought like, this, this has got to be true. Um, I had my own reasons for it then too. Um, anyways, and my own journey with Heartlanderism is really interesting because I, I think it, I think it shows a lot of my own development, right? So as I mentioned, I was pretty conservative when I came into the church. I had the view that um, I uh, should be as orthodox as possible. Uh, when I was at my Catholic college, I was surrounded by people who were very, very religiously orthodox in Catholicism. Um, very, very kind people, very devout people, um, but definitely not at all subversive. Um, and, and even some of them were subversive in a traditional way. Like I had some friends that were considering being a part of, uh, you know, tra sorry, traditional Catholic movements. I was going to say tri-Catholic, but oh. traditional Catholic movements like SSPX, which is the Society of uh, St. Pius X. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, so I, that was sort of what I was surrounded by, even though I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I had a, a very uh, diverse group of friends in high school. Um, which made, which made it different for me. But coming to college, I was definitely surrounded by conservative Catholics. Um, and anyways, so as I started studying Heartlanderism, um, and I really dove into it in 2020, because so in the lockdown, right, there wasn't that much to do, um, quite frankly. And, and for me, I had a lot of personal struggles in the lockdown. Um, like I, I lost someone that I loved. Um, I lost in a metaphorical sense. Um, and then I also was hit by a truck. So I had a ton of time where I was just, I know, yeah, wow. it's so random, so random. But I had a ton of time to just to just study things. Um, so that's why I started studying Heartlanderism because I thought, okay, like I, I know that there, I know vaguely of other Book of Mormon geography movements. I want to understand them. And then as I started studying Heartlanderism, uh, Trump was happening too, um, which makes this really interesting because I, I always felt, um, you know, like I was a conservative libertarian type. Um, and then Trump came and Trump sort of challenged a lot of my assumptions because I saw a massive shift amongst my friends who were conservative amongst uh, people in the GOP, shift to a type of conservatism that felt so foreign to me. And, and that was really cognitive dissonancy, right? Because uh, so I'm 23. My first election was the 2016 election too. So I, I haven't really ever voted in a non-Trump election, um, which was super strange. And anyway, so as I started studying Heartlanderism, 
Trump was happening and particularly in November, that's when I really started getting into it. And that's right when we were voting, right? And I ended up not voting for Trump. Um, I thought that I was going to because I thought, well, geez, I'm conservative, I should, but I ended up not doing it because I just couldn't do it um, like many other people. And at, at that time too, I, I started seeing a lot of nationalism amongst the Heartland movement. And I, I think that that's what really uh, caused my own shift in beliefs too, because I saw a type of, um, I guess prejudice is the word that I, I think is best to use that could come from exclusivity of, of a particular location that could come from saying that America is the promised land, therefore X, Y, and Z. And I think that therefore X, Y, and Z is often manipulated by people who have different intentions than maybe uh, Rod does or Wayne May. Um, but, but I do think that that is in, in incredibly tied to Heartlanderism. So at that time, I, I, I would say that that's when my own faith sort of started to shift. Um, I became more progressive in some ways. I became more progressive politically for sure too. And a lot of that was because I saw what the Heartland movement uh, could do to people, uh, it could, what it could cause them to say about people from um, uh, other countries. And I, I'm not saying that to be mean because I, I really do think that there are many people who sort of naively accept the Heartland model and they don't think about the implications, but seeing the implications uh, really defined my own faith journey in a way that I didn't think it would. Um, and that's that's why I decided I was going to write about the Heartlanders. Um, I decided that a while ago, but I wanted to be very cautious in the way that I did it because these are people I go to church with. These are not, you know, random people. And I also do try to be compassionate yet direct in my criticism of things like this. Um, I decided a while ago that I was going to write about the Heartlanders. This was last year in, in 2020. Um, and, and my faith continued to shift. My views continued to shift, um, especially in 2021 to coming up until probably October. And October is when I really, I, I really started to feel an impetus to speak out because that's when in my research, I was able to make some more concrete connections because before, in my mind, I, I had seen, uh, you know, the Firm Foundation, which is uh, a foundation that espouses Heartlander research. I had seen who they had for speakers, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, people who who are anti-vaccination. And I will say, not all people who are Heartlanders are anti-vaccinations. Actually, Jonathan Neville made a, a post about vaccinations that I, I I would really like to just say I appreciate that he did that, um, especially given that most people in the Heartlander circles that I've seen have been very anti-vax. Um, so I've seen a lot of anti-vax uh, stuff. I saw a lot of holistic medicine that, um, or alternative medicine promising cures for things that probably can't be cured by them. Um, I, I saw a lot of those elements very clearly. What I didn't see as clearly was Mormon fundamentalism and also overt white supremacy, right? Because uh, racism is, is very complicated. Racism isn't just direct prejudice. Racism is systemic. Racism is, you know, uh, something that has built up over time. And um, I wanted to be able to critique them in a way that would be helpful for them, as well as helpful for other people, because I really do care that people don't buy into belief systems that 
then lead them to have assumptions that might be incorrect and assumptions that can be harmful. So at that point in October, that's when I started stumbling upon more uh, what I would say nefarious connections. And um, there's a lot of research that um, has been published by prominent Heartland figures that is used by people who are not just, um, you know, run-of-the-mill, ignorantly prejudiced people, which is still bad, but who are people who are overtly neo-Nazis who claim that title for themselves and, and they, they wear swastikas proudly. I saw that that research was being used by them to prove their own race theories about how they believe that white people really became Native Americans or something like that. And that, that point for me was the tipping point where I, I said to myself, okay, like, this is it. This is where I have to start speaking out against the Heartlanders in a way that is effective. Um, and I made a plan of the, the order in which I would, I would do things. I, I will say I am writing a lot more things than I've published currently. Um, I started off with Facebook posts that um, started critiquing the movement in, in ways that were connected to either white supremacy, but also to uh, evangelicalism, which we we're going to talk about a little bit later, specifically Calvinism. Um, I've noticed that they adopt some Calvinist worldviews theologically. Um, so I started critiquing that and I started critiquing, uh, you know, the race implications too, because in my own journey, I sort of, I, I, I thought to myself probably two years ago that racism was only overt and I didn't understand systemic racism. And once I started to understand systemic racism, I felt like I needed to repent in a lot of ways. I needed to repent of my, my lack of compassion. I needed to repent of things that I had written that I thought were incendiary and that were, um, you know, harmful too. So I, I wanted to be able to, to one, stop with my, with my attitudes, educate myself on systemic racism, but two, also speak out for marginalized people and speak out against things that are harmful, um, especially in my own faith tradition. And I, I see the Heartlander movement as harmful to marginalized people, especially, especially immigrants. Um, so that was, that was sort of why I started researching them. And then the Religion Dispatches article, honestly, just resulted from time, the time of the Montrose, Iowa um, excavation being rekindled. They've done it before. I was planning on waiting about a month before publishing anything else. I was going to wait until after Christmas. But as soon as it came up, I was like, well, I already know that I'm going to write on this. I already have uh, researched it sufficiently, I feel like, to say what I would like to say. Um, so that's why I really got into Heartlanderism. It's very interesting now, folks, if you notice the hat that I'm wearing. Um, the, this is my friend, my friend Jonathan Neville, um, and Boyd Tuttle of the Digital Legends publisher gave me their last hat that they had to uh, promote one of Jonathan's uh, books. Now, I, I specifically wore this hat because, first of all, many of my uh, viewers are Heartlanders. And I'm uh, friends with many of you. Uh, when I went and visited the Firm Foundation, uh, I have a conference this past September. There were people there that recognized me. I mean, Rick Bennett was with me, and he's like, "Wait, well, everybody seems to know who you are. They don't know who I am, you know." Which was funny, uh, you know. But then, then there were some people who ended up recognizing him as well, of course. Um, but so I really appreciate how warmly I've been embraced by people, and and what they appreciate is that I'm not. My, the goal of this channel is to talk, to listen to all the voices within the restoration. And I really feel like the Heartland model kind of gets like 
dumped on a lot. And I think sometimes unfairly, uh, because personally, I think that, you know, I, the Book of Mormon does not function as scripture for me. So if to see people get into arguments of where it happened, it just seems weird. It's like almost like, well, that's an interesting opinion, or you're bringing a different worldview to the, to, you know, and and so um, I just want to say ahead of time that you know I I um, I'm going to if Jonathan Neville or somebody from the Heartlanders wants to come on, they have an open invitation to respond to this interview, um, but yeah, so I went to the Firm Foundation conference, and I will tell you that it, it is very conservative. Now I was a Republican uh, consultant; I ran for political office, so I'm very conservative, uh, very very uh, knowledgeable about the conservatism, right? Uh, and so I thought, okay, this is very familiar to me. I've been into conferences like this. So I know that one, it does, it is right-leaning uh, politically, uh, generally speaking, uh, which is fine, you know, that's fine. But I also feel that, that one thing that I saw in the 90s when I was doing uh, political consulting was there were far-right elements that would try to piggyback onto uh, the Republican politics. And it was interesting because I attended, um, I'm not going to give the name, but it's a pretty well-known um, boot camp, political boot camp. It was at the, the Ohio State University campus in Columbus, Ohio. And it was a, a, this boot camp that I went to. And they told us that far-right people, um, you gotta, they're, they're going to be your best volunteers. They're going to be your envelope stuffers. They're going to go door to door. And they basically said, welcome them in. That's what they told us. And this is to all these young people who are you know, being told, okay, because I was running a congressional campaign. I met with militia leaders because I was told that these people need to be put, you know, these people are gonna be working for us. So I understand, and I don't mean to be talking so much, but that just give context. So I kind of saw some parallels here that I saw in the nineties. And then we see it manifesting itself, of course, in our modern political environment. I'm, I'm a lifelong Republican. You know, and I'm and I'm a principled conservative. I will say that, but I also am open-minded to progressive people. Like, for instance, Hannah. You know, you've been on a journey, and you know, let's just explore a little bit about your journey. So, you would say that you had written stuff that you would have thought was considered incendiary, maybe very conservative. What if somebody were to say, Hannah is just experiencing white guilt, and that she's she's uh, embracing maybe what some people would call CRT or critical race theory. So the belief that systemic racism exists and all this kind of stuff, and that you're just trying to, you're just working this out in, on some level. Would, would it be fair to say you're kind of working things out and, and, and maybe this article that you wrote is just part of the process of the journey that you're on? Well, so I would say that I, I now fully embrace critical race theory. I think that it is a perfectly fine way to view systemic racism. I've, I have had a lot of people who, and I'm, I'm honestly glad that you brought that up. I've, I've had a lot of people who have um, sort of attacked me for becoming more progressive. Um, and what I would say is that once you see evidence for systemic racism, um, I think it's hard to unsee it. And I, and the best way that I, that this is the way that it at least works in my mind. And this might not be satisfactory for everyone, but I grew up in, in Boston, Massachusetts, and I actually had a black friend of mine who explained this to me, given where I was from. So I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and if you've been to Boston, um, you know that it is weirdly segregated in, in a way where, um, and it's hard to explain without going there, but there are definitely um, ethnic groups and races that are in different spots, and, and it's it's very oddly segregated and I growing up I wondered why that was because I just didn't know and I thought it was so strange and I found out that a lot of it had to do with the economic structure 
that was put in place after reconstruction and how that has continued to create systems where marginalized people, people of color, and especially, especially black people in America are put, are, are kept in, in particular communities that hinder their progress. They don't have the same access to opportunities and that's why they don't have a quality of outcome. So once I saw it through that lens and I realized, oh gosh, like th that makes perfect sense. And I, I went to, I, I, I grew up in Boston. So I went to, to plenty of areas where I could see, yeah, like the school system here just, isn't as good as the school system somewhere else. And that's not the fault of the people who live there. That's the fault of the way that the system has been constructed, right? I also read um, the book, Racism Without Racists. And I thought that that was really paradigm shifting for me too, as well as the new Jim Crow. Um, and I recommend both of those books. I think that they're both really helpful for understanding the way that systemic racism works. And I also saw the way that you know there's unfair there's unfair treatment in terms of sentencing for prisons and things like that too. So once I saw all this evidence for systemic racism, that's when I realized, okay, this is a legitimate problem, and I've been approaching this completely incorrectly. I never saw myself as a maliciously intended person. I, I didn't think I had malicious intent. I really did want to love people and be compassionate, um, but I, I needed correction on my paradigm because my paradigm then led my actions to be discompassionate. So I don't think I'm experiencing white guilt or whatever. Um, I, I, I think I am simply accepting the vast evidence for systemic discrimination and trying to live my life in a way better because I know that evidence. So, you know, it's interesting. It's a parallel um, that I experienced on some level because I'm from a region called North, Northwest Indiana. And so I lived right on the border, actually across the street from me is Cook County, Illinois, where Chicago is located. And that actually, that area of Chicago, the Chicagoland area going into Northwest Indiana is still the most segregated region in the country. Um, and so I, I experienced a similar thing in Boston is, a, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting parallel. Um, so yeah, I saw it myself. I grew up that like, I grew up in the wealthiest community in the state of Indiana growing up as a kid. And then you had Gary, Indiana, just a few exits down on the expressway, one of the poorest cities in the country. And, you know, um, and so there was this definite disparity that was just happening even within my own backyard. So I recognize that. Now, I, I do, I just, I'm really curious, what are your thoughts on what's so fascinating to me is that the Hispanic or Latino uh, um, people are shifting to the right. Uh, it's, it's, it's apparently the polling data is showing is that now um, people with the Latino background are becoming more Republican. Um, they're shifting towards the Republican Party. Um, I also want to ask you, like, one of so something about the, the black male votes uh, was about the best that a Republican has done, like since the 50s. So you had a pretty large portion, you know, it's maybe 15 to 20 percent or so of black males voted for Trump. So within that context, what? What, what do you think is going on there? I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. I'm not entirely sure what's going on there. I will say that I, 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 I don't like the view that um, people of color should only vote Democrat. I think that that is a very harmful view that's been perpetuated too. I think um, people of color should be able to vote for whoever they want, um, just mm -hmm. like any other person. Um, so I honestly, I'm not sure why that might be. Um, I've heard some theories about how um, perhaps they think that the economy would be better under a conservative president. I'm not entirely sure though. 
Yeah, it's just an interesting thing that's happening. So let me ask you, would you, what if somebody were to say, and I think Jonathan mentioned it in his critique of you is that, that you're, you're woke. Would you consider yourself woke? Yeah, so we had this conversation and, and this is, it's sort of weird for me to, to even think about myself being woke because I was conservative for most of my life. Um, I don't like the term woke um, and I don't think it is expressive of who I am, even though I do now favor political progressivism and I'm progressive in a lot of ways. Um, the term woke to me, at least the way that I've, I've heard conservatives use it, sort of means someone who is um, like a, a social justice warrior who doesn't care about people on the right. That's typically how I've heard it being used. I've heard it being used pejoratively. Um, and while I might agree that I, I think uh, progressivism is the best way to go, I also think that the term soft progressive, which is a term I actually coined for one of my friends. Um, so I have, a, I have a friend who's, you know, he, he's definitely progressive in a lot of ways. And I just thought he was the most compassionate person ever because even when I was like more conservative, he still saw me as a compassionate and good person. So I, I just called him a soft progressive because that had been so different than my experience with other people who were progressive. And he's a large reason why I shifted to progressivism because I, I saw that there was a space for being that type of person. Um, so I prefer the term soft progressive, even though I used it to describe my friend, because I think of myself as uh, being compassionate towards all people. I think that even the people that um, are definitely, you know, in the movement that I critique, I think that those people still have worth, they still have value. I still love them and I still want the best outcomes for them. Um, and I don't ever want to be hard towards people. I don't ever want to be um, critical without being charitable because I think as a Christian, I have a responsibility and a God-given obligation to love my neighbor as myself um, and to selflessly serve everyone, not just the people I agree with. So, you know, I kind of have more of a libertarian uh, streak. Um, I... <sighs> I have a really hard time um, identifying with groups. Like I, I'm very much like an in, the individualist. Now, is this my privilege because I'm a white male? And so I'm afforded all the opportunities that maybe not everybody has. And so that would put me more in, you know, libertarianism would, just like Calvinism in many ways, white males, uh, you know, in North America are very much find that very appealing. So I have a hard time thinking about being in a group. Like I never joined a church because I don't believe in church membership. I just, I, I think the only group I actually ever formally joined was Libertarian Party for one year. <laughs> I gave them $25. And so I, I'm just not a joiner. I don't like to be associated with groups. And so I, I have a hard time. And I, I just want to get your thought on this. Um, you know, there's a lot of criticism. So what happened on January 6th was very upsetting to me. I saw a lot of crosses. I saw a lot of Christian flags. Um, it was very much an evangelical, a lot of evangelicals were in that crowd. And it, it bothered me, it hurt me. It actually almost caused me to do go a different direction and not do this channel because I'm, I, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing on the right. But conservatism in general is a reactionary movement. It's reactive to what the left is doing. So the, the argument is, is that what we saw on January 6th was just merely the right reflecting what the left is doing. Does that make sense to you? In other words, when they saw the cities burning and all these other things happening, you know, one of the things that really bothered me, and I don't want to get political, I'm not interested, but there's, there's one thing that really, really bothered me was as the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, 
and you know, people weren't wearing masks and they were getting involved in these big group settings and the media was just covering it. And at the same time, there was this Christian open air Christian music festival in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Now this is my people, this is Dutch. And th th this Christian concert in Kalamazoo, Michigan and the media just tore into them for having an outdoor concert at the very same time that they just were covering the story about a mass gathering for Black Lives Matter. People on the right see that and they're just like, What's the deal? Why is it that a Christian concert is wrong and evil, but yet it's okay to be doing a mass protest against racism? Can you understand how maybe a conservative would be befuddled by that? I can understand um, how a conservative would be befuddled by that. Um, I first want to respond to what you said about nationalism, and then I'll take Please the... Said, yeah. Yeah. So, so that January 6th was also a, a massive turning point for me too, because um, I, I've never really liked nationalism. That's why I've always kind of been libertarian. Um, but especially on January 6th, when I saw, when I saw Christians who were saying that they wanted like a Christian ethno state who were, uh, but, but especially like, first off, I think that that's wrong, but then especially defining that Christian ethno state as white people only, that's when I started getting really troubled and that pushed me further left. Um, because at that point, I, I would say that I became, I was probably pretty moderate at that point. I was, you know, I, I, not as libertarian as I was before, but definitely still moderate. But then I definitely got pushed a little bit more to the left because I saw, and you know, my reaction to seeing nationalism on the right, especially Christian nationalism was, I want equality for all people. I want all people to feel welcome here, to feel like they can be here. And that is just so antithetical to my own worldview that I, I want to run away from it as far as possible. Um, that was my sort of reaction to Christian nationalism. And I think that that might sound dramatic, but I, I do think that that is the number one issue in American Christianity right now is far right Christian movements. Um, and in terms of, of media coverage, I, I can see why a conservative would definitely be upset with that. I can see why they might see it as hypocritical. At the same time, I do, I do feel like there is a difference, at least in my view, of a, a protest against systemic racism at, a, at, a, at a, a moment in American history where we saw and we had like a universal awakening to the, the disparate treatment of black people by the police compared to white people. I, I do think that that was a very important cultural moment for us to be able to protest against something and to unify for it. Whereas I, I see a concert as more voluntary during a pandemic, whereas the, the problem with systemic discrimination, especially um, in the legal system, I saw that as more of a necessary problem to protest against, if that makes sense. But I can see, I can, understand and empathize with the seeing it as hypocritical well and part of, part of the reason i even bring that up is in particular it was a christian it was a christian gathering yep. and the first the first amendment protects the freedom of exercise of religion as well as free speech so to me it was almost like the press was criticizing christians for exercising their first amendment rights and praising the left for practice for for, for practicing their First Amendment rights. In other words, they both fall under the same category. Religious freedom of speech and religious expression are, I mean, freedom of religion is mentioned first over freedom of speech within the First Amendment, if I'm remembering correctly. So that would be the only 
quibble I would have with that is because they are both constitutionally protected. And typically the media has always been about protecting constitutional rights. And I just felt that really bothered me. I mean, I wouldn't go to that open air concert. You know, I wouldn't go to church without, you know, service during the pandemic, but I really felt like the criticism just, it just bothered me. And I can see your point, but they're both first amendment rights. And I, I don't see why the press would criticize one and not the other. That's, that's just my view on it. Fair enough. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> okay. yeah. So, um, and again, I, I, this channel is about just having conversation and dialogue. And so I've had progressives on here. Um, I've had very conservative people on here. I've had LGBTQ people. I'm talking to everybody and that's the important thing, but it's also important that we have adult conversations on this channel as well. So just, I wanna swing back a little bit back to our heartland thing. Um, so about 20 years ago, maybe it was in the late, late 90s, early aughts, and you might know the dates better than I, and I, because I brought this up to you the other day, was um, I was in Chicago and I picked up an, uh, an alternative paper uh, weekly, one of the Chicago alternative weekly papers. May have been a Chicago reader, but either way, they did an expose on a gentleman by the name of Frank Joseph. And if people don't realize, this is a pseudonym of somebody who actually um, was familiar to people in Chicago because he was actually a leader of the Nazi party and was organizing a march through Skokie, which is a primarily Jewish community. And all he, they actually got the, the rule, court rulings in their favor. The ACLU argued on behalf of the Nazis to march through Skokie. They never did the parade, but this person then was jailed um, because he, I guess he molested some boys. And then it turns out he's Jewish. And so and then he reinvents himself as Frank Joseph. Well, I had known Frank Joseph because I also read Ancient American Magazine and realized, hey, this guy is writing for this magazine and he's a Nazi. And that was really bothersome to me. Uh, just maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I went down the Ancient American Magazine rabbit hole. So Frank Joseph, um, I, I believe his name is Frank Collins, right? Uh, um, he, he was the editor of Ancient American Magazine. And I looked at who was publishing with them out of curiosity. They have all of their, their issues online, um, like in terms of like like the article of each person and who, who read it, sorry, <laughs> that was a jumble of words. Um, and they published a ton of issues. And I kept seeing the name Wayne May. And I thought to myself, huh, that's, that's pretty strange. But then you go to the homepage and there's a video of Rod Meldrum. Um, and then I realized that, you know, this is the same Wayne May that is the Heartlander Wayne May. So I started looking into who, who wrote for Ancient American Magazine. Um, and, and I haven't had time to do it, to do every single person's name, but I've done uh, about half of the people that are, that write for Ancient American Magazine. I just took down all their names and started Googling them. And I started coming across a large number of people who are openly Nazis, um, who write material that is either Nazi uh, like propaganda or Nazi fiction. And that was deeply disturbing to me because the same people that were also writing for this magazine, not only writing it, but editing it, were, were involved with the Heartland Movement and sometimes used sources from ancient American magazine to support the Heartlander Movement. And, and that became really troubling to me because I saw this sort of connection and, and it's not just a loose connection in which, you know, they, they like submitted articles to the same magazine and they both got published. That I'd be willing to say is a little bit different even though Ancient American Magazine is, is sort of a, a pseudo history magazine in the first place. 
But this is a, a situation where you have Frank Joseph writing the foreword to one of Winmead's books. You have him co-authoring things. And that to me is deeply troubling because I believe that we should love all people, but I don't believe loving all people means excusing what they do. And I see no reason to associate publicly or privately with people who are Nazis. Um, that is a hard line boundary for me. A and seeing that connection between Heartlanders and uh, openly white supremacist people who use Heartlander material too, who use the stuff that Wayne May writes to support their race theories, to support the theories that they use to enact violence against people. That became very deeply disturbing to me. And I'm not saying that Wayne May is a, is a neo-Nazi. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying though that he chooses to associate with uh, Frank Joseph and he chooses to continue work that he knows um, or maybe doesn't know, but I, I assume no, um, that is being used to support Nazi theories. And that to me is very deeply troubling and he might just be ignorant. He might just not know the implications of that um, or not have thought it through. But I do think that that is disturbing uh, to say the very least. So another thing, so I was doing similar research that you 20 years ago that you, you started doing in the last year and a half because I also, so just so you know, like I was a poli-sci guy and I took some nationalism courses and so I, um, came across uh, some Holocaust denial stuff. So in the 90s, the Holocaust denials was kind of like in vogue. Uh, it had some momentum. Um, there were some pretty serious minded people that were kind of, you know, um, kind of rubbing shoulders with the, 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 this, this movement. So I studied it and um, I came across a publication called the Barnes Review which is a Holocaust denying publication. It's named after Harry Elmer Barnes, who was a respected uh, World War I historian and then who got into Holocaust denial following World War II. So they named the publication after him. And one issue that they had was about basically ancient American civilizations being settled by primarily white groups. Um, and so they talked about maybe Europeans and other groups and they gave a shout out to Ancient American Magazine and praise them. And so a few, I, I, I thought, ooh, that's interesting. Uh, what's the connection here? So then a few issues later on Ancient America, they, they reprinted uh, the praise that the Bars Review gave. And Wayne May, as I recall, wrote saying, wow, we were really honored to be, um, be have this, this positive thing written about us in this publication, this respected journal. I'm not going to say who I talked to about this, but I mentioned this to somebody who's a prominent Heartlander, and um, I said, "What's the deal? Why would he accept an endorsement from a Holocaust denial publication?" And this person told me, "said I think Wayne May probably had no idea that this was the Barnes Review was a Holocaust denying publication," um, and so that gave me. So just so you know, like I stayed away a little bit away from Wayne because of what I found out 20 years ago. So I'm like, I don't know what to do, you know, because I was concerned, you know. And then it, I, this person told me, said, I, I don't think they knew this. I think he's kind of a naive person. I don't think he realizes that that's what was happening. But you, you did the research too. You looked it up. You, you saw that what I found was accurate. Is that correct? That's correct. And so I was like, okay, that's 20 something years ago. And it's like, you know, I'm just saying, Wayne, um, you know, you need to just consider, you know, who you're associating with. Um, I don't think 
you're a racist. I don't think many of the Heartlanders that I've met, I think they're wonderful Christian people in my mind. But I think that you guys just need to look at what's happening is I'm afraid that there are people who are trying to take advantage of you and your movement. And I'm just saying like, I don't want that happening to you because I love y'all. And I, I, I just think that um, I'm just concerned that the direction that, 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 that people like that could take advantage of the Heartlanders because it appeals to the idea of nationalism. So let's maybe talk to speak to that for a minute. Yeah, so it does inherently appeal to the idea uh, idea of nationalism, and that's one of my biggest problems with it. And I, I would like to say that I I think if Wayne May, Rod Meldrum, and others explicitly condemned Nazi and white supremacist movements and apologized for those mistakes, that that would be fantastic. That there is a path forward here. I don't want it to be me just criticizing. I think. There, there is a path forward here. Um, but I, I do think the nationalism connection, I'm afraid, is, is impossible to skate over with Heartlanderism. And I think it's sort of baked into Heartlanderism, which is why it's hard for me to criticize the movement without pointing that out. Because the, the basis of the movement, right, is that um, at, least in, at least the way that Meldrum and Porter have articulated it is that you know, you have early church leaders that talk about this land, this country, America, and they say that those statements refer to the United States of America, and they use those statements, um, and they also use uh, some Joseph Smith stuff from 1834, um, while discounting the later Joseph Smith stuff that, that sort of, you know, suggests Central and South America, um, but they use those statements to say, this means that America is the promised land, and this also means that the Book of Mormon took place in the United States of America. And in my mind, um, that belief in and of itself is a harmful belief. But um, also, that's not what the church leaders meant by saying this land, this country, or America. They, they meant, you know, the continent of America. And there have been a variety of people who have shown that. Um, and I know that the Heartlanders are aware of the people that have shown that. So my, my concern, though, too, is I wonder how much of a nationalist lens is being used to interpret evidence for the Heartland model. Um, and, and I know that there might be some people that do it without doing that. Um, and I would love to see more of their work. Um, because, but I, for me right now, I don't know if there's a way to untie Heartlanderism from nationalism if it rests upon that belief. Um, and, and the nationalism, I think, is quite scary because I think the nationalism bleeds into QAnon. Um, and firm foundation, and if anyone wants screenshots, I'm happy to provide them because I know I know claims like this can be troubling, and people want to see evidence, and there is evidence. Firm foundation has posted several times um, about how they think that you know a wall should be built, or or they've said very insensitive things about immigration. And to me, that's where nationalism leads, and that's why it's wrong. And I think that you know if we look in both the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek Bible. Um, there are plenty of instances of, in, especially in the Greek Bible, Jesus commanding people to take in strangers, to take in foreigners. But also um, in the Hebrew Bible, you have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. While that story is typically used to condemn homosexuality, that's not what the story is about at all. The story is, uh, is condemning not having hospitality for strangers. And, and to me, that's one of the, the greatest impetuses we have as Christians is to welcome in the foreigner, to welcome in the stranger, because we are not strangers. We are all part of the family of God. That is a fundamental belief. Um, and because of that, 
Um, that's my main concern with the nationalism of Heartlanderism is that I've seen that nationalism being used by people who are Heartland who are prominent Heartlanders to support views on immigration that are contrary to one, the church's position in the first place. And I think that that's a big point. And two, that are contrary to the to Christian principles and to what I see as good moral principles too. So, you know, one of the things, you know, so I spent a lot of time watching uh, Rob Meldrum's um, programming and they do a lot of American imagery, American flag. And I do feel like on one hand we have, I feel like a 1950s patriotism that a lot of people, generally speaking, would that would be how it would, I could describe them. So they're, they're patriotic, they love America, America's a great country, and they don't have a racist bone in their body. And I think that's how most people are. The thing is, is that, that the nationalism comes in that same cloak, it's cloaked in the American flag. And so often when people hear nationalistic rhetoric, they are conflating it with their patriotism. And so I, I feel like, you know, the, that, that, does, that that's how nationalists try to, is they try to basically come across as 1950s American apple pie patriotism, uh, but it does at times have some, uh, there's a dark, there's, there's, there's a dark thing to it too, you know, that I feel that people just need to be aware of. That's all. I just think that you need to be aware of it, be cognizant of it. If somebody is uh, wrapping themselves in the American flag, you need to ask yourself, okay, why are they doing that? Is it because they love America or do they have another agenda? And I think that that's just important that we just take that into account. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's important that we take it into account. And I also just want to point out too that a lot of the, the nationalism can be used to reinterpret Mormonism in a nationalist context. And that to me is very concerning. Um, so there are some books um, like The Lincoln Hypothesis that in my mind um, aren't really on you know, solid concrete historical evidence. Most historians are very critical of that book. Um, That's written by Ballard, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that there's not a lot of concrete evidence for that in the first place. It's, it's very speculative. Even if, even if you like the book, I think you can admit that it's pretty speculative in the first place. Um, but my problem with it is superimposing Mormonism upon this founding story of America, tying them so closely together when you know, that doesn't seem to be historically supported. And I worry that that gets away from the vision of a global church. So my, my main concern with the nationalism too, is that I, I, I do think a lot of it comes from ignorance and not being aware of the way that it comes across or not being aware of certain elements of it. Um, so I, I'm not trying to be, you know, too critical. I just want to, I, I see this as me lovingly pointing it out in the first place. I, I will also say that I don't have malice towards any of these people. Like for me, I, I, I don't have cross thoughts about them. I just genuinely care about them and I want them to be able to live good Christian principles. That's how I see what I do. So when I come across things like that, I, I, I definitely agree that, you know, a lot of people probably see it as 1950s patriotism, but there is, there, there is a, a sinister underside that has sort of crept in to, I think a lot of patriotism, um, where it's no longer about love of country and loving other people coming into the country. But it's just merely this idea that there's one type of American and that type of American is the only American that is worth having around. And it leads into Christian nationalism too, which is my central problem with it. And I know that Calvinism in particular has a lot of issues with that too. 
So it's not just a Mormon problem, but I do think there are some unique elements of Mormonism that make it more conducive than other religions to having a type of nationalism that I would love to disentangle Mormonism from. So we're going to hop into Calvinism in a little bit, but what if what if I were to go to you and say, well, your own scriptures basically say that the U.S. Constitution is inspired, um, and also uh, was it President Woodruff who baptized on behalf of all the founding fathers? So the argument is is that from the beginning almost that there was this idea of tying in Mormonism with the founding of the country. It's not just the Lincoln hypothesis, but this this has been baked into Mormonism almost from the start. So there's some truth to that, but I would also like to say that the, the Mormonism that I espouse doesn't rely on that inherently because I also really like the 1978 statement from the first presidency that talks about how uh, all religious leaders, all religions have had a portion of God's light given to them, right? So it talks about, it names like Socrates, it names Muhammad um, amongst other religious leaders. So I, I'm okay with saying that uh, various documents can be divinely inspired. For me, that doesn't mean they're scripture. The constitution isn't scripture to me. We can change elements of the constitution and you can change elements of scripture, right? Like I'm not a scriptural inheritance in the first place. I, I believe that scripture has mistakes in it. And I think it has things that are wrong that we can uh, say that are wrong and be fine with saying that they're wrong. Um, but I, I don't think that so saying that something is inspired puts it on that same level. So I'm willing to say that tons of things are inspired, right? Like I think the Bhagavad Gita is very inspired. I think, um, I don't know, Plato's Republic is inspired, like in some ways. I think most works of literature that have some type of, of impetus for doing good are inspired on some level, even if they might have things that I, I wildly disagree with. So I, I sort of have a big tent approach. Um, and in, in that in that sense, you know, there there is some, and I won't deny it, there is some inherent uh, connections to America that Mormonism was founded upon. That's true, but I definitely don't think that you can't disentangle Mormonism from them. I think Mormonism can stand without those connections. Um, and I, I think we're seeing church leaders trying to do that too, um, for the record, right? I think a lot of church leaders are, are talking more about this vision of a global church. Um, and I think that that's incredibly important. That's a mission I totally support too. So yeah, you're right that there, there are these elements, but I think it's all about how you interpret them too. So one of the criticisms that um, you mentioned is that you're kind of imposing um, onto the Native American population um, a, his, a, a pseudo history or you're imposing onto them um, a white man's view of, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Like there's an imposition. Yeah. Okay, so maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so my concern is that um, I, I think what's happened is the Book of Mormon is taken to be a literal history and scripture is not literal history in the first place. Like scripture is a record of, of occurrences in some senses, but scripture is also poetic. Scripture has hymns. Scripture is often metaphorical and figurative. Um, there's a lot of genres contained within scripture. It's not a, a genre in and of itself. So I think the first problem comes when you take scripture as history, right? If you take, and this is true for the Bible too. This has, this has greater scope, right? Like if you take scripture as a strict history, uh, one, I just don't think that that's accurate. And two, that leads you to then have this idea that, okay, I need to definitely locate where this occurred, I need to make sure that this has like some sort of background evidence for it and then use that to support the model. So my concern is um, the text itself doesn't say like where it took place. And I think 
you can def definitely have the view that Joseph Smith had divine inspiration for the text, but it doesn't have to be historical in the sense that everything literally happened. I think it's a spectrum, right? Um, and, and where you place yourself on that spectrum, I think is is, is totally dependent upon your views and, and what you see as evidence, right? So I think uh, I see Heartlanders at this end of the spectrum. Like, so th this, this end of the spectrum right here is uh, Joseph Smith was divinely inspired, but you know, it, it just all came from God. None of it, none of it has any basis in ancient, in the ancient world. It's just a 19th century work of literature. And on this end of the spectrum, uh, you have every single thing in it literally happened just like the text said it happened. And there's no, there's no metaphorical language in it at all. And I, I think uh, Heartlanders are probably like here to here. Like there are some Heartlanders that have more nuance on this, right? But they're probably in this, like this space. So in that sense, then they take this history of uh, of what they believe happened um, because of what they re read in the Book of Mormon. And then they redefine what happened in Native American lands. Of course, that is me saying that it, 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 the Book of Mormon didn't happen in, in America, right? That's my view, is it did not happen in the United States of America. Um, do, but they do, take- do, do, do you think it happened, so you accept the Mesoamerican model? Is that where you think it probably took place? Currently, I'm kind of agnostic on that. Um, what, but, what, uh, what would you say to people that try to put that, that some would say you're imposing a Book of Mormon narrative on Mayan and Olmec cultures? Sure. That's also, that's also a fair point. I, I'd say that that's a fair point. Right. So, so I, I'm sort of agnostic on, on Book of Mormon location. And I'm also agnostic too, on how much I think Joseph Smith uh, influenced the text too, which of course then influences my, my first position. Right. Um, I'm not really like a Mesoamerican um, or scholar of uh, indigenous people either. Um, but as to the point of imposing the narrative, yeah, if, you know, we do have some records of indigenous people, but we don't have a lot. And, and I think it's important to name the reason we don't have a lot, which is European and American colonialism, right? That, that involves the literal destruction of where people were, that involved a violence to these people, that involved them having to suffer a ton of violence, suffer a ton of uh, injustice. And because they had to suffer that injustice, we've lost their records. We lost a lot of their artifacts. We lost a lot of their history. And then I see the Heartlander model as incorrectly imposing an entire history upon a people that wouldn't claim that history for themselves and that often don't. And I, I understand that there are some indigenous people who do claim that history. Um, and, and I don't want to say that they're wrong for doing so. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to criticize that. But I also do think it's important to name that, you know, it, there isn't really evidence that it did happen in that way. A lot of the evidence presupposes this idea that white people really became indigenous people, which is something I reject entirely. Um, and because of that view, I, I see it as colonialism on both ends, right? Because it does stem from if you accept a lot of the evidences that they use for the heartland model, right? Like if you look at their sources and you accept a lot of the evidences that they use, you're, you're sort of implicitly accepting the view that white people came to the Americas and became indigenous people. And those indigenous people then became uh, who they are today in, in various tribes. But you're accepting that they were originally white. And to me, that is incredibly problematic. There is not evidence for that. It's based on pseudo-history. It's based on pseudoscience. So in that sense, it's imposing more of a narrative 
upon indigenous people than I think the Mesoamerican model would, but I don't think that that's an unfair criticism of the Mesoamerican model either. Well, you know, I got this image here from uh, the famous uh, Blue uh, Book of Mormon, and they have a mural in here, which is implies, it does, implies you have white, light-skinned colored people in the mural, and you also have dark-skinned people in the mural. And so the implication is, is it's almost like this is implying that idea of a white race, two separate races, a Lamanite yeah. and Nephite in that mural. What, what do you think of that? Um, yeah, I think that that is what it is implying. I also think that that's wrong. Um, okay. I don't think, so, so this kind of gets into skin cursing in the Book of Mormon too, right? I, I don't think God curses people with different colored skin. I don't think God would ever see darker skin as a curse. I think that is an idea that we need to completely condemn. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say that there, there are definitely people, there are definitely church leaders who have espoused the Heartland model or who have incorporated that into various materials. There are also, you know, church leaders that have done that with the Mesoamerican model. That's not something that's essential to salvation. I feel totally fine to criticize that and just say that that's wrong it shouldn't be there that's cool that's i didn't mean yeah. to put you on the spot there but as you're talking oh, no, you're like, wait a second i got it no, no you're fine you're fine i figured it would come up you know <laughs> yeah so um you know it's interesting because we, we talked part of the reason i contacted you was i was watching some aaron schwafeloff's uh, videos and uh here you are having a nice little friendly conversation with aaron and aaron is a calvinist and i come from a uh, my my uh, lineage or my heritage, if you will, is uh, Christian Reformed, uh, which is Dutch Reformed um, on both sides of the family, come from a very Calvinistic background. I would have called myself a charismatic Calvinist for a good part of my life. One of the things that I find so interesting is that my ancestors could have migrated to one of two places. They could have migrated to North America, uh, either the United States or Canada, which has meant a lot of Dutch are in Canada as well, or they could have migrated in the 19th century um, to South Africa. And so you have this large population of primarily uh, Dutch people um, with some French Huguenot stock as well in there, and of course they're Calvinists as well. And they formed a group called Afrikaners, became a distinct um, ethnic group in, in South Africa. And in the 20th century, one of the most Christian nations in the country, in the world, was the Republic of South Africa, the apartheid era government. When I say Christian, um, in the sense that they would, have, they would consider themselves a Christian nation, the Afrikaners. If my ancestors had taken a different path, I could have ended up in South Africa, possibly being a right winger, uh, you know, <laughs> part, yeah, I mean, you don't know where fate takes you, right, sometimes. So in other words, it's baked into Calvinism, this sense of race. And, 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 and the reason why I say that is because I'm Dutch. And almost all the Dutch people that left the Netherlands are Calvinists. They all believe they're elect. They believe that they're chosen and they're all white and they're all Dutch and they live in their own little bubble. And that was the same bubble that was imposed on South Africa too. So this idea that you are a particular ethnic group and by golly, God just seems to like us so much better than the rest of the world. <laughs> and that can lead to what apartheid that can lead to an racist system. So let's just talk a little bit about maybe some concerning things within Calvinism as well. Yeah, so um, I'll tell my, my Calvinism story too, because it's kind of interesting and I think it'll shed light on the question. So I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts and most of my friends 
were not super religious, uh, especially in my friend group. I was friends with a lot of people who were uh, Hindu or who were Buddhist. Um, and that was the predominantly religious people. And then pretty much everyone else was not super religious. Um, I was the only Christian in my high school friend group, which I thought was super interesting. Um, so I didn't really have that much exposure to um, different types of Protestantism. I, I had some exposure to like, you know, the Hillsong type. Um, mm. But I, I grew up around a lot of Catholics. If someone was Christian, I, I sort of assumed that they were Irish Catholic. Um, and that tended to be the demographic that I, I lived in. And that's the demographic of my family too. So um, anyways, so then I, I came across uh, Aaron Travelock down on Center Street in Provo. So I actually just met him as, so I was just walking with a friend one night and then I saw these guys with signs and they were being so loud. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm gonna like go talk to, go talk to them. Um, so we, we started talking and the conversation was definitely really interesting. Um, we talked about different, you know, different views on justification and things like that. And then uh, he asked me to come back to, to film a, a dialogue with him. And I said, sure. And um, I talked to Aaron quite a bit that summer. Um, I, I've had a lot of conversations with Aaron. And I will say that I think that Aaron is a very well-intentioned person. Um, I, I disagree with Aaron so strongly on theology, but I think he's a very well-intentioned person. Um, and, you know, some of the things that he said about, uh, particularly determinism. So the idea that God has already determined where you're going to end up, um, and the implications of that, that to me was very, very off-putting. Um, and I think that that is perhaps the, the worst teaching of Calvinism is this idea that where you're born, the time that you're born in, that you can end up in hell just for, just for that, that God has favorites, essentially, that he chooses, that he has the elect that he chooses, um, and you don't really have much control over that, because you can't control when you're born, you can't control where you're born, you can't control whether or not you're going to find the gospel, as they say, right, and be baptized um, in their ways, you, you can't control that, so in my mind, that's the worst teaching of Calvinism because that to me seems so antithetical to the Christ of, of the Greek Bible, which I see this Christ is very welcoming as wanting everyone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that it's not really about denomination for Jesus in, in the Greek Bible. Um, he says that we should be united, but he doesn't say that it's about denomination that determines whether or not you enter heaven, right? Matthew 25 is my favorite <laughs> section of scripture, which says that like, you know, it's about whether or not you give to the poor, it's about whether or not you visit the sick and imprisoned. Like those, those, that's the metric, whether or not you welcome in, in foreigners, right? That's the metric for Christianity. But the metric for Christianity within Calvinism isn't that. The metric for Christianity within Calvinism is this idea of, oh, if you're chosen by God, then, then only are you saved. Um, so that's one of the teachings of Calvinism that I don't like. I also don't like the political elements of Calvinism. And that's not inherent to Calvinism. Um, I don't think, but I do think that there's a massive correlation there with right-wingers um, and, and the abrasiveness of Calvinism, the abrasiveness that it breeds, I think is very harmful. And that's not so much a theological thing as it is a cultural thing, but I do think it does actually stem from the theological belief of, um, you know, there are certain people that are predestined to be saved. And I will also add too, 
um, I, I sort of looked into apologia, right? So mm -hmm. I, I went down the apologia rabbit hole because <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I, uh, you know, like started talking to Aaron and it was posted online, I had a few, you know, Calvinists come into my Instagram DMs and some were super nice. And I will say like, you know, there are some that might watch this. I want to say, I love them. Super nice. If we had a great conversation, we had a great conversation, but there were definitely some who were, uh, a little bit harsher to me. Um, and somewhat misogynistic too. And then they mentioned apologia. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll look into apologia. And then um, as soon as I looked into apologia, I uh, watched uh, James, James White and Jeff Durbin debating Quaku. Um, Quaku is a very controversial figure. We don't have to get into that, but like I still watched the debate and I was like, oh, oh, wow. That's an interesting, that's an interesting debate to have. Um, so I watched that and I don't know. That was that was really rough for me. But also seeing the way that apology approached certain issues, um, even the abortion issue where they were advocating for women who got abortions to be killed, I was I was so taken aback. I was like, that that is not pro life at all. If you want women to be killed, that's horrific. And you um, so you would were, and you would describe yourself as pro life. Would that be correct? I think I think pro life is a very progressive position to take. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think more human rights for more humans. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, so, so I, I found that to be really, uh, disgusting, quite frankly, and I'm not trying to be too harsh. I, I feel so bad. I've been so critical today, but, um, <laughs> I, I, I have very limited patience for Calvinism because I think it's so antithetical to Christianity and especially going down the apology as studio rabbit hole. I, I saw how in particular, there was two weird things that struck me. Um, Right, because I'm not from Utah, so I don't. I didn't know the Utah Mormon evangelical connection. That is just something nobody told me. So I thought it was so strange that they talked about Mormons so frequently. I was very confused by that. That was the first weird thing that I saw, and then the second weird thing that I saw was a lot of their right wing beliefs sort of bled into their theology in some ways, and they did. They did also have a nationalistic approach in some senses, which was so weird for me because I thought. If you believe that anyone can be saved anywhere, why would you be a nationalist? I don't know. Um, it just seemed to run into each other. But I know that you're also critical of Calvinism too. Yeah, it, eventually I'm going to have that little conversation with somebody I think, well, I'll be visiting in Utah in the next month and I'll be talking about that. But one of the things we haven't, uh, well, he's more a friend of yours, but I, I have an acquaintance or friendship with Jackson Washburn. And I had Jackson on my program and Jackson, um, wore eyeliner on my program. Now he had also posted on Facebook earlier that day, his eyeliner. So I thought, okay, so he's emo, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever floats his boat. And uh, so he comes on my program, he's wearing eyeliner. And then the next day on Apologia Studios, they go after Jackson. They don't list him by name, but they say, and he's wearing airliner, eyeliner and they're going after him, they're just blasting. The great irony. And see, to me, this is what religious, the pharisaical religious mindset does is, they're criticizing Jackson for wearing eyeliner while they have, they're covered with tattoos. And yeah. that's just as condemned in Leviticus as anything. And I thought, how foolish, you know, you're going to go after some, like a guy for wearing eyeliner and then you're, 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 you're showing off your tats. I thought I that's, that too, and I, I will say, I got so angry at that because, you know, I think Jackson's eyeliner is rad. Like, I think it's kind of cool. Right. Um, but I just got so angry because I was like, that's just the well, one that seems so petty, right? Like that's incredibly petty. But also if you do have tattoos, like why would you 
why would you go against someone for wearing a temporary you know uh drawing on their face when yours is permanent yeah and they, yeah. they don't they don't see it they don't see the hypocrisy yeah. and to me that's like okay you're the pharisees guys you're the pharisees in case you're wondering what what your role is if you will that you're predestined to be or whatever your world crazy worldview has to talk about but that just really bothered me and it, it, it upset me too because jackson said hey they're talking about me so i clicked it on i watched i'm like oh it's toxic bro culture is what yeah. it is well and, and the thing is I, I i will say that like i think that that toxic masculinity in a sense is is so harmful because you have someone like jackson who i think espouses um a type of mormonism that's really inclusive that's really well thought out um but he also to me espouses um a type of, of comfort and confidence with who he is and, and i think that that is really admirable um while still being a sensitive person and i think that that is more of an ideal to strive for than the toxic bro culture so i always find criticism like that so ironic because i'm thinking to myself okay so you're basically publicly gossiping about this person for something so petty um while saying that you're somehow better than him um when he's not doing that i don't know it's so it's so strange to me so uh, just to you guys uh aaron shalapalop especially now you seem you seem like a nice guy um now you did a drive-by post on me where you questioned my evangelical credentials i invited you to do a one-on-one -on -one zoom with me so we could talk um crickets never heard anything uh this is a, happened in another prominent evangelical did the same thing to me it's like they want to say oh look i'm publicly going after you but the opportunity to be man you know eye to eye have a conversation um I'm inviting you, Aaron. Um, you, like I said, you seem like a nice guy. Um, I have to say that I feel like Kwaku really nailed you <laughs> when you had that debate. Um, I think I, I don't really know where you're coming from half the time because sometimes you're really nice and just like you know you, you you're res you're respectful. You had a really nice interview with Rod Meldrum where you let Rod Meldrum speak, just like I did on my program. Now apparently I can't do that, but you can. I don't know because I you took a, a quote of mine out of context and. I get off my soapbox, but I just I'm very concerned about um, the face of Christianity that Mormons are seeing, because if that is what they're seeing, guess what, guys, you're pushing people out of the kingdom. You're pushing people away from Christianity if that's what you're trying to do is by doing that. And I just I just think it's wrong. And I think that the approach that we need to take is of Christian love, understanding and just the uh, and be humble that we don't know everything. We don't know the will of God. We can't know the will of God. And those who think that they know um, essentially are putting themselves in a, a place they probably shouldn't be yet. Yeah. Is it okay if I comment on that a little bit? Oh, please, please. Yeah. So so I think uh, the first thing I'll say is I think um, one, one big thing for my faith journey is I, I really do think that the Bible teaches universal salvation. Like, I, I think if if you have some faith in Christ, knowing that Christ is love, Christ is light, Christ is good, Christ is virtue. I do think that that means you're going to be saved. I think everyone's going to eventually be saved. I do think that we do, you know, there, there are some uh, things that we do that prohibit us from that. And I think those things are like genocide and rape, um, more extreme examples for which we do have to have a period of time where we, we forsake that. But I do think that everyone will eventually be saved, which is why I love Mormonism, right? Because we you, you can have progression between kingdoms within Mormonism. But the second thing that I wanted to say too is, you know, I, Aaron will remember, I brought some friends with me over the summer when I would stop by. I brought a couple friends because um, I, I don't know, I'm just a social person. <laughs> and 
my friends, that was their first introduction to Calvinism a lot of the time, because a lot of my friends, most of my friends are men um, and who grew up in Utah. And that's probably because of where I live, right? So I, I live in Utah. And they, they hadn't met someone who was very devoutly uh, evangelical. They, they had met people who were, you know, and, and they had baptized people who were evangelical on their missions, but not someone who was theologically rigorous at all, not someone who knew what they were talking about. And their first major interaction was uh, very loud in some ways and some somewhat abrasive to them. And I, I do think that that turned them off from Calvinism uh, before they even thought about it. Um, and I know that that you know, you could just dismiss that as, oh, like they had an emotional reaction and that's their problem, but that's not their problem. Um, how, we, how we treat others does determine whether or not our message uh, is going to be received well, even if that message is just understanding, right? Like I, I really wanted to understand Calvinism. I have no intention of ever joining, um, but I wanted to understand. And having a, an abrasive, and I will say Aaron was quite nice to me, but I, I understand that um, there, there were other people there who I would say were a little bit more abrasive towards me. And that was kind of, that was kind of difficult for me because I, I saw myself as trying to genuinely understand. I wasn't really even trying to debate most of the time, even though a lot of the time it was turned into a debate. Um, but having that be an introduction to Christianity for a lot of people that can be very off-putting, um, especially if they've grown up in, in Utah where a lot of Mormons are, are a lot quieter religiously, um, we have, we have more of a reverence culture. And I, I have my own criticisms of that for the record too. Like I think that cultural music shouldn't be seen as irreverent, for example. But at the same time, that can be very off-putting for the, the audience specifically. Yeah, and just, I, I want to point out too, you know, I'm not trying to paint Calvinism oh, just with a broad stroke because, you know, these a lot of these people would be, would be called hyper-Calvinists. And so they're just taking Calvinism actually to its logical extreme. Um, and uh, Francis Schaeffer actually says, uh, the philosopher said, you know, all you have to do is just take the a view to its logical extreme to see if it holds water or not. And they're just taking it to its logical extreme and, on some level. But I also say there are some really good Calvinists out there, people from a reformed tradition that I'm friends with, um, that aren't going to be as arrogant in their view of election as these, uh, these guys are. Um, and, you know, that's just, uh, you know, I don't... I love, I, look, I look at it this way, you know, your brothers in Christ, you know, I, I, I don't know if they'll view me as a Christian, um, and they just certainly probably don't look at you as a Christian. Um, some will say, well, Steve, you're really not representing evangelicalism, and Hannah, you're really not representing Mormonism, um, because, right, I mean, they're saying you're just, it's your own, Bruce yeah. right, right, exactly, <laughs> and, and so that's true in one sense, uh, but this is the reality, the reality is, is that all religious experience is inherently subjective, um, and that your belief system is really more reflective of your personality and how you're hardwired than, uh, than anything else. Um, so what is true to one other person may not be true to another. It is kind of subjective, and that's the reality. Objective truth is not attainable. Um, objective truth, T with a capital T, we could understand as being the great unknown, the great, the, our God, the, that's beyond comprehension. Uh, outside of that, man, you know, we just, we just got to be show a little more empathy for people. We don't. We all see through a glass darkly, and if we can, you know, these guys of Apologia, they banned Jackson, this kid, banned him from their campus. And then there's another incident that happened with a young kid, a 16 year old kid that they bullied recently. And it's like, come on, guys, grow up. Yeah, I agree. I, I think 
I think what you said about the message of empathy and charity, I think that that's the most important thing, right? I, I see Christianity as me defining my relationship to other people, right? So it defines my relationship to God. It defines my relationship to Christ, but I also have to define my relationship to other people. So I do, I do see this impetus to encourage other Christians to be more compassionate because I do think American Christianity has become so abrasive, so white centric, so uh, you know, it is, it, a lot of it is very homophobic too. There's a lot of attitudes that are so harmful and detrimental to other people. And it's become to me, not a reflection of what I read in the Greek Bible. And there's, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that I think people, especially my age have of how do I be a Christian while being compassionate when our, when our models are so abrasive. So I think it's, I think there's a lot of space to grow in terms of charity and compassion and empathy for other people. Because most people, most people are good. Most people are trying. You know, uh, when I attended the Mormon History Association, I was looking around and I was scouting out young people because um, I thought, well, first of all, I'm just getting started here. I want to attach myself to some young up-and-comer people. So uh, through my friends at the Christian Podcast, Outer Brightness, they recommended that I meet uh, Jackson Washburn. So that's how we met. We had a nice conversation together. And I thought, I want to get connected with all the young people who are going to be the up-and-comers, the future thinkers of Mormonism, the people that are going to be developing Mormon doctrine. Uh, you know, Jackson has a fascinating thing where he's taken like the Protestant view of grace and intertwining it within Mormonism, which I think is fascinating. Um, I also feel the same way about you. I thought, I found another Jackson Washburn. <laughs> and I know you're friends, which is so cool. But I, I just want to say, Hannah, you know, you, you are making a contribution to your, uh, to your faith tradition. Um, it's important that if we want to be uh, uh, relevant in this postmodern world that we live in, we need to be able to think on our feet, uh, be able to deal with uh, facts that maybe are counter uh, to what our scriptures might tell us, that we need to make these adjustments. And, you know, Hannah, I just want to thank you for being one of those people that's going to, I think, going to affect the course of Mormon thought in the 21st century. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's really kind of you. And thank you for having me on. It's been so fun. Yeah, this was great. Now, folks, uh, this is probably going to be a controversial episode. Uh, I think uh, that uh, this might cause some chatter online. And I just want to say that the most important thing is that we just acknowledge we have differences. I don't try to paper over differences that Christians have with the Restoration. Acknowledge them. Talk about them. Uh, don't try to just do this wishy-washy thing where we just kind of, you know, don't, uh, we just pretend there aren't any differences. We should acknowledge them. But we also then should also show empathy. We should love our neighbor. We should learn to turn the other cheek. All the values that Christ taught us, that's how we, how we operate. And the way I see it is I just tell people, I say, well, how do you know if somebody is a brother and sister in Christ, you know, in the theological context? I say, well, I just look for the fruits of the Spirit. If I see the fruits of the spirit there, I don't care what building they go to on Sunday. Yep. And, and I think that's the kind of the kind of kind of kind of conversations we need to have. Just acknowledge the fact that the universal brotherhood of humanity, uh, we all are related to each other. Uh, we are in one sense brothers and sisters on on that level as well. Um, the idea of Mormon cosmology and pre-existence and all these things are fascinating stuff, you know. And it's it's interesting that. Uh, that's why I think I love Mormonism is that in one sense, I love the ideas that it's bringing about. It's making people think. And, you know, I, I know it's controversial, but after 200 years of evangelicals going after you guys, I think it's time we did something a little different. What do you think? 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I love what you said. Like, I don't care what building or lack of building you go into. I just want to be friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that's that's key to it all. So um, I just want to remind my audience to a couple things. First of all, the podcast format is going to be released soon. Uh, the Patreon will be released. Now, this is this you'll be seeing this on Thursday. I think this Friday or this weekend we'll have Patreon up and running. So those of you who've been begging me to do podcasts and Patreon, those are coming shortly. Um, I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit the like button uh, or the notification button to be informed when a new episode is out. And I just want to thank you once again, Hannah. Do you have any final words for my audience? Just that I love everyone. <laughs> so thank you again. Awesome. Okay, y'all have yourself a great day.